Well, this morning we are continuing to uh, think together in our sermon time about that brief little passage in Acts chapter 2, specifically verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. As we do this, as we continue to look at these marks of a spirit-filled church, we do so because we're in the middle, the midst of, a longer sermon series called Phaseology. Over the past several weeks, we've been thinking together, preaching about the role, the work, the person of the Holy Spirit, first in the Old Testament, then in the life and ministry of Jesus. And now we're in the third movement of Phaseology, talking about the work and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and in the life of of individuals. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking very specifically about what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the church. And we've seen that Acts chapter 2, verse 42 serves as sort of a waypoint. These characteristics should be seen in any church that is the church of God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We should be, any church should be, devoted to the apostles' teaching, the preaching of the entirety of the counsel of God, Old and New Testaments, all 66 books. The church filled with the Holy Spirit should be committed, devoted to the fellowship, to life together. Last week we talked about worship in a very general sense, talking about uh, worship of a Spirit-filled church being built around the bones of word and sacrament and prayer, fleshed out with the muscle and the sinews of song. And today we look at this little phrase of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the prayers. And prayer is one of those things that I really think that most people do at some point, at some time in their life, whether they believe in God or not, at some point in everyone's life, they will offer a prayer. Now, they may be offering a prayer up into the ambiguous ethers, just reaching out for help from some unknown source, but they're looking for something external to themselves to come in and do something in them to help them in the midst of a crisis. I really do think that at some point in everybody's life, we pray. But more specifically, as Christians, as a church, a a local expression of God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, I imagine that while we might enjoy varying degrees of delight and faithfulness in prayer, we all can agree that we ought to be praying. In our Christian circles, most of the focus about prayer is actually on individualistic private prayer. When we talk about prayer, we typically say, what's your prayer life like? And we mean, what do you do by yourself in your chair, your prayer closet, in your study to pray? It's really interesting that if you begin to look in the pages of Scripture, most of the biblical references to prayer are not references to individual prayer, but are rather references to corporate prayer. That is, praying together, how the people of God gathered together to worship God pray in common. Now, I'm not saying this because I want to downgrade or denigrate private prayer at the expense of corporate prayer. Rather, I'm not trying to elevate private prayer above corporate prayer or corporate prayer above private prayer. Both types of prayer are like food and water for the human body. Both are absolutely necessary. Without private prayer, a Christian will die. 
Without corporate prayer, a church filled with Christians will die. And so both are modeled throughout Scripture. Both are, in fact, modeled by Jesus, who enjoyed private times of prayer, conversation with the Father, but while he was also surrounded by a group of individual believers, a small body, they prayed. And so this morning, as we we turn to pay particular attention to corporate prayer, I really want for us to recognize this big idea. God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit have the privilege, the privilege of praying together. And as we talk about this big idea, uh, God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit have the privilege of praying together, we're going to do so by asking and answering a question. How can we pray? We'll talk about then what prayers in common are and look like we'll then move to ask the question, what does corporate prayer actually do for us? And then we will apply this truth to our lives in a very practical way. So I hope you packed a lunch this morning. We will not get, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Some of you have concern on your eyes. Well, let's ask that question. How can we pray? How is it that we can come before God and say to him, Father, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And in each case, in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, as we heard read this morning, Jesus taught his disciples to address God as Father. And before we say anything else about prayer, corporate prayer or individual prayer, let's start at the very beginning because that's a very good place to start. How is it that anyone can pray? How is it that anyone can address the holy and infinite, sovereign and glorious creator God as Father? How is it that we who are by nature imperfect and unholy can speak with the one who is perfect and holy on such familiar terms? Only a few people in my life call me dad. How can I call him Father? Folks, it's only because of the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that any person can pray to God as Father, that any person can offer a prayer. For the believer in Jesus, prayer is not simply to some sort of ambiguous heavenly being, but to our Father. And when we say those words, our Father, we are actually reflecting a deep theological truth, the truth of adoption something that we have to have embedded into our hearts and into our minds about who we are as believers in Jesus, objectively who we become because of who Jesus is. We are adopted to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. We heard Dorothy read these words from Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And notice this. If you did not receive the Spirit, you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer in, with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How can we pray? How can we pray to God as Father? There's only one reason why anyone can ever call upon God, the creator of all that is, as Father. And it's clearly evident in the scriptures that this one reason is by grace through faith and the meritorious work of Jesus Christ and the application of that work by the Holy Spirit. This is how believers of Jesus are made sons and daughters of God. This is why believers in Jesus can come before him and say to him, Our Father, because we are adopted as sons and daughters, we are made children of God. As Paul says, co-heirs with Christ through the bloody cross, the glorious resurrection and ascension to power of Jesus. Through the descent of the Holy Spirit, that which was once dead is made alive. What was once lost is now found. The Father adopts us through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And we can call upon Him as Father. Without faith in Jesus, we can't call God Father. Without life in the Holy Spirit, we are not children of God. Without Jesus, there is no true life. Without Jesus, there is no true prayer. Without the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives, there is no life. Without the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives, there is no true prayer. We have to see, folks, that prayer is a great privilege, a privilege of sonship, a privilege of being a daughter of God, of being adopted to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And that is the place where prayer becomes a conversation, not with an ambiguous heavenly being, but with the Father who is in heaven. And so corporate prayer, what we do together as we pray in common, this is us together as God's adopted children in Jesus through the Spirit coming into God's presence to seek the Father together. And when we pray, because of the work of God in Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we pray as God's children and children who are objects of the Father's love. I greatly appreciate what Wes Hill says about this. He, he writes in a little book about the Lord's Prayer, In Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, we're already bathed in the Father's love. He is already cupping his ear in your direction. How is it that we can pray? Because of the love of the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. Because He's adopted us as His children. Because He turns His ear to hear. And so God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit have the privilege of praying together as sons and daughters of God Most High. And we can only do this because of Jesus. So we have this privilege because of Jesus. We have this opportunity to pray the prayers, common prayer. But what is common prayer? If you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 closely, you'll notice that the prayers equal praying together in both formal and informal settings. Both public and private expression of worship and faith is found in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is life together in formal and informal manners. Luke writes that they devoted themselves to the prayers. And what did he mean? 
In this particular context, it seems best to understand that the earliest church devoted themselves to intentional and appointed times of prayer as well as informal and uh, extemporaneous or spontaneous times of prayer. They met together at a specific time in a specific place. They gathered together to pray. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, for example, Luke mentions that these early believers met daily at the temple. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And so it seems as though the evidence of Scripture shows us that the earliest church continued to pray to God as they saw Jesus pray to God, adopting and adapting the formal times of intentional prayer from their Jewish historical context. What would they have prayed at such formal and intentional times? Well, the Psalms make up what many scholars refer to as the Jewish prayer book, and it's quite likely that as they gathered, as this earliest church gathered as one body to pray at the temple, the Psalms would have been included. Surely they would have viewed the older and traditional prayers in a new light, the light of Jesus Christ, but they continued to pray in a formal and intentional manner. This type of praying would be Uh, analogous to our use of the prayer book. But we also see common prayer in the book of Acts as informal corporate prayer, what those of us who grew up in the Baptist tradition might refer to as a prayer meeting. They drop the G, add the apostrophe. We see an example of this in Acts chapter 4. Immediately after Peter and John were threatened by the rulers and the elders, the church gathered to pray. And there they prayed a portion of Psalm 2 and then prayed out of that psalm for boldness to preach the gospel in the face of real opposition. The point I'm trying to make this morning is simply this. The earliest church devoted to the prayers prayed together at formal and intentional times as well as informal and spontaneous times. They used formal forms of prayers and they used prayers that they made up on the spot extemporaneously. It's important for us to recognize that this is happening corporately. It's happening in common. It's happening together. It's important for us to recognize this, I believe, because we live in a world that celebrates the individual. We live in a world that uh, celebrates what one person can do as we try to go it alone, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to make our own way in the world. God helps those who help themselves, we tell ourselves, and yet... It was Ben Franklin that said those words, not the God who inspired the Scriptures. What we see in Scripture is that the life of a believer in Jesus, the life of one who is part of the church, uh, builds uh, is, is meant to be lived in fellowship with other believers. It's a life meant to li- be lived in community, surrounded by those who sh- with shared faith in Jesus, common cause for his kingdom and the ability to love and support one another. This idea of a rugged individualist is a romantic notion, but it's really a myth that is destructive to the life of a believer in Jesus. And so when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them a corporate prayer. He taught them a common prayer. And it's actually a rebellion against the status quo to pray together. It's actually a rebellion against the way the world seeks to form us because we're praying together. About this, Winfield Bevins, who is a church planter and a professor at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky, don't hold that against him. He comments when he, on, on common prayer when he writes, 
The idea of common stands in stark contrast to a radically individualistic world which tends to make communal prayer not so common. Common prayer draws us into unity as a church, and by praying in the common prayer tradition, we never really pray alone. So we have the privilege of praying together because of God's work to adopt us through the Son in the Holy Spirit. We have the opportunity, the privilege to pray together. It's for our good to pray together because we're not really alone. But what does this corporate prayer do for us? What well, joins us together, actually builds us together as we grow in Christ. What we often call the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and recorded in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 11, is perhaps better called the Disciples' Prayer because Jesus gave it to his disciples and to his church to use. We can ramble off this prayer without even thinking about it, probably in the King James English because that's holier than regular English. I'm glad you laughed at that because I'm clearly saying that sarcastically. But let's actually slow down and notice a few things from this prayer in Luke chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 6. It's a corporate prayer. What are we saying and what are we doing and what's happening to us when we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First thing that we're doing is acknowledging who God is and we're acknowledging our absolute and total dependence upon him. We say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, and we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are recognizing that God is God, that he is holy, he is righteous, he is set apart, and that he is sovereign over all of creation. We are recognizing that God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is the king of that which he has made. We are recognizing that we are weak, but he is strong. We ask for his will to be done. We're recognizing that he is in control and we are not. We're asking for his forgiveness and for the ability to forgive others. We're recognizing that we are needy and he provides plenty. We turn to him and we say, give us this day what we need, our daily bread. Fill us, nourish us physically and spiritually. We recognize that we are impoverished, but God gives with superabundance. And we pray this having hope, confident expectation for a better tomorrow, confident expectation that His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, confident expectation that we will be forgiven, hope for provision. Why? Because of who God is. Fundamentally, He's Father. And as Jesus points out in Luke chapter 11, if we who are knuckleheads can give to our children bread when they ask for bread and don't pull a dirty trick on them, how much more can we expect from the perfect Father good gifts? And so we come before God together in total and utter dependence upon Him for who we are, what we have, trusting with hope that He will do as He said He will do. Prayer is, in many ways, this expression of hope, this confident expectation that, of God's children in Him. This expectation that His kingdom will come, that His will will be done here and now, just as it is done in heaven. And seeking God together, we pray for God's ways to be accomplished upon this earth. We recognize His sovereign control. We actually are praying evangelistically when we say and ask for His kingdom to come. 
We're not just praying for ourselves when we say, Lord, bring your kingdom here. We're praying for the world. Make your kingdom known. We look forward to the time when the ascended Jesus will descend with great power and glory to rule and reign as king of all creation. We pray for God's priorities as a people, and this, John Anwuchekwo writes, forms us into a community of people who confess that our dependency on him is not primarily circumstantial. Our dependence on God is not whether we're impoverished or rich, but it's just because he's God. We pray together for our daily provision, physical and spiritual, as we pray for food, forgiveness, and faithfulness to God in the face of temptation. We pray in our dependence, feed us, Lord, in your grace. Forgive us, Lord, in the name of Jesus, and help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to forgive others. And Lord, we pray in your grace, in your strength, be our backbone in the face of temptation. Be our strength and our shield in the face of anything and everything the world might throw at us. And praying these things together forms us together. Praying these things together informs us about what God wants to do. And praying these things together transforms us. The amazing truth is that we have this privilege because of adoption to pray to the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. The corporate prayer that we're called to does things to us in God's grace. And an even more amazing truth is that the Spirit is at work as we pray. St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What amazing grace. The Father who has his ear cupped in our direction, the Father who bathes us in his love, we can come to him as co-heirs with the Son, and in the Spirit we can pray. And even when we don't know what to pray, even when we don't know how to pray, even when all we can do is cry or weep or wail, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And he does that when we're together. When we pray together, Edmund Clowney writes, the Pentecost promise is renewed, not in visible flames, but in the presence of the Spirit who makes intercessions for us as we pray. Praying together is an expression of the fellowship believers have in Jesus. Praying together unites the individual parts of the praying church in heart and mind and in spirit. Praying together is something like iron, sharpening iron as the individual parts are built up in the fellowship of the praying community. We amen and agree with a prayer for healing. We amen and agree for a prayer for a, a young mother struggling to pay the bills. We come alongside one another as we struggle with our sin, as we're called into repentance. We are there together as a community. We grow in Christ together as we pray together. Prayer is the privilege of God's people gathered together in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. 
We acknowledge our weakness and our dependence, God's strength and his grace. We seek God's kingdom and his will. We proclaim that we are his people. And praying together is a cosmically political action because it is rebellion against the principalities and the powers against the way things are. A former professor of mine, David Wells, comments on the nature of prayer when he writes, it is, in essence, rebellion. Rebellion against the world and its fallenness, the absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. Prayer is, and this its negative aspect, the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit have the privilege of praying together as sons and daughters adopted to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. We can come before Him, bathed in the Father's love, praying together in a political way for His kingdom to come, acknowledging before one another and the world and God that He is our King. We are His people and that we are utterly dependent upon Him. So, by way of practical application this morning, let me simply say this. Commit to actively being a part of our times of common prayer. By way of practical application this morning, let's simply reflect on the call and the necessity to and for corporate prayer, and let's respond accordingly. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This morning, as we continue our worship in word and sacrament, in prayer and in song, think back to how we began the service and all along the way, notice just how much of what we do is actively bound up in prayer. And then I call you, join in. Prayer is infused with every aspect of our worship service. We pray in song for the Holy Spirit to come. We pray for God's work to make us pure in worship. We pray for God to oversee the proclamation and the preaching of his word. We respond by praying about specific things in specific ways. We pray in recognition that all we have is a gift from his hands. We pray over the bread and the wine. We pray a thanksgiving and we go out in prayer. And so this morning as we turn to intentionally pray in the prayers of the people, I encourage you, be an active participant in our common prayer. A second point of practical application is this. Be a part of both the formal and informal times of corporate prayer. Again, we hear from God's word to, in the letter to the Hebrews. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. And so knowing the great privilege we have in Jesus Christ, knowing that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf, let us be a people of prayer. Commit to being there. When we gather together, whether in large groups or small groups, what we call net groups, whether we gather together in Bible study or times of fellowship with a meal, does prayer happen? And are you there? Not just physically taking up a seat, but are you there engaged with the prayers that are being prayed? God's people gathered in Jesus through the Holy Spirit have the privilege of praying together. It is for our good that we pray. It is for God's glory that we pray. And so let us be a people devoted to corporate prayer, both formally and informally. Let us be a people who exercise our great privilege in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, adopted to the Father, bathed in his love, objects of his 
kindness. Let us pray in dependence upon Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, seeking His work within us, seeking His work within this world. Let us pray for His glory. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we do praise You and give You thanks. Thank You for what a privilege it is adopted to You through Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. What a privilege it is to be able to call upon You as Father. May these songs that we sing rise to You as prayers. May they celebrate You, acknowledge You. May they be an expression of our utter dependence upon You. And in everything that we do, May Jesus be front and center. May we have the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us to be at work for the glory of you, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.